Now, as we are opening our Bibles to the eighth chapter of the book of Romans, you will notice in the, uh, in the bulletin that it is the evening sermon series title on Romans that is there, and that's because this is next in the evening series, but I wanted to preach it in the morning. So for you evening series note keepers, you'll want to make note that this morning fits that series. These wonderful, wonderful, divinely inspired words familiar to us all, the eighth chapter of Romans beginning in verse 31, but I think what we should do is go back to verse 26, catching the entirety of the context. May the Lord bless the reading and exposition of his own holy word is our prayer. Romans 8, beginning with verse 26, this is the word of God. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers." And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, people of God, here we are gathered on the first Sunday of a new year. And I always think about where the congregation is, members of the congregation, struggles that you're facing when I think about the first sermon on the first Sunday of the new year. So what shall I preach? Shall I preach on the sovereignty of God over all things? Well, yes, we certainly need that encouragement. Uh, Should I preach on the brevity of life? of the eternal nature of God. All of these thoughts run through my mind. But as I've thought about the world in which we live, and as I've thought also about the needs of my own flock, 
You know what I said to myself? I said this. There's no text but this one that I want to preach. Uh, This text is about the assurance of faith that belongs to the people of God. And what I believe that we need more than anything is to be assured of God's love for us. And so this morning we're focused upon God's love for us and the assurance of faith that is the result of knowing that love. And what a magnificent passage is before us. To believe God's love for you is to live lives filled with assurance of faith. And Paul has presented the cross and its implications in the book of Romans thus far so that we will live confidently. The pinnacle of his argument is right here in this text that we have read this morning. What the apostle expresses here is no arrogant presumption, but confident assurance based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so we focus this first Sunday of a new year on assurance of faith. Will you focus there with me? The assurance is, first of all, grounded in God's sovereignty, grounded in God's sovereignty. And for that, I would remind, again, most of you are there on Sunday evenings and you are in the exposition, and I've already preached these verses, but I would remind us of verses 28 and 29, in which the apostle says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so the Apostle Paul says, as we groan in the midst of this fallen world, God gives the ground upon which we may rest our confidence with powerful affirmations of God's sovereignty in the lives of his people and in our salvation. And he says we are foreknown and we are predestined. And you will recall from our Sunday evening series that to foreknow means to put his love upon beforehand. And so forever and ever and ever God has loved his people. He has determined to save his people. He has predestined his people, which is to say God has an eternal plan to save us as people. And in time, he has called us to himself out of darkness into light, out of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God's own dear son, which is the working out of that plan in history. And those that he has called, we are told that he has justified. God has declared that he accepts us as perfectly righteous in his court of law based solely upon the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. And those that he has justified, he also has glorified, which is a reference to the complete sanctification to which God is bringing us into the eternal state. It is still in the future, but Paul in this passage states it as if it has already happened because it is certain in God's counsel for you, in his predestinating plan for you. The end point, of course, is conformity to the image of his own son. Where is God leading you through all of the troubles and tribulations and hardships of life? He is bringing you to ultimate conformity to the image of his own dear son. This week I was pondering eternity. And I was thinking about the eternal state for the believer and the eternal state for the unbeliever. And I said to myself, the thought of an eternity with a heart that wants evil is overwhelmingly ugly to me. Is it to you? The thought of an eternity in hell with a heart that is unchanged, 
that continues to want and crave evil and to long for those things contrary to God's character is incredibly ugly to me. But thank God for all of his people, the, the ultimate is conformity to the image of his own son. That's his plan and purpose for us. The sovereignty of God then is one necessary plank of our assurance of salvation that determines and carries through our salvation all the way to the end point of conformity to the image of his own son. And so we speak here of the sovereignty of God. Oh, how God speaks of his own sovereignty in so many places. Just listen to these words from Isaiah 46, 8 and following. God says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. That's our God. Or think about how the Apostle Paul also speaks of God's sovereignty in 2 Timothy 1 when he says that God has saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Or the way in which it's spoken of in Acts chapter 13, verse 48, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Now, rightly, it has been said that God's signature is mystery. We do not understand his sovereign rule of the universe, but he rules his universe. This is his world, and he runs it. The truth of God's sovereignty is given not to answer speculative questions that are beyond us, but to galvanize us for action in this life so that we may live the Christian lives that he calls us to live. Have you come to know the Lord? Do you know him by grace? Have you been saved from your sins? It is because of God's eternal plan and his promise to give his son a people. And so Paul asks, as he contemplates these things, he says, what shall we conclude? And you might expect a simple answer, but he gives a very complex answer that is rich with theology, so that our assurance may be, and this is the second thing, so that our assurance may be invincibly courageous. So that your assurance in Christian living may be invincibly courageous. The courage, the confidence, and assurance are seen in the answers that Paul gives to the questions that he poses. So let's see the invincibility of the believer's assurance by looking at Paul's questions and the answers that he gives to those questions. The first question is found in verse 31, if you'll look. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, had the Apostle Paul simply asked the question, who can be against us, there would be a variety of answers. Our sinful selves, the world, the flesh, the devil, but that's not what he asked. He didn't say who can be against us. He said, if God is for us, who can be against us? Taking us all the way back to verses 28 and 29, God's eternal loving purpose for his own his own plan to save. Since God is for us, the triune God is for us. Since the Father has loved us, since the Son has died for us and has been raised from the dead for us, 
since the Spirit of God opens our hearts to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, who can be against us? What if God were against us? Who could stand against this God were he against us? But the good news is for all who trust in him, he is not against you, but all of his divine attributes are for you. All of his character is for you. All of his love is for you. All of his divine purpose and plan is for you. God is for you, and he is not against you. And so the Apostle Paul asks a second question in verse 32. Now, I preached verse 32 last in the evening series, but here's the question. He who spared not his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And I simply want to ask the question of this question, what does Paul mean by the all things? Well, they are the all things that work together for good, are they not? They are the all things that lead us to conformity to Jesus Christ. They are the all things that we need to live for God's glory. They are the all things that will carry us all the way to the end. And you'll recall that there's an echo here of Genesis 22 when Abraham is called upon to sacrifice his own son Isaac. And God says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything for him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Paul's point is, Abraham in the end is not called to sacrifice his own son, but God gave up his son for you. And he argues then from the greater to the lesser. If God has done this for you, will he not do this for you? If love gave up his own son for you, then will his love fail you in the experience and hardships of life? Will he not give you everything that is needed to bring you to that terminal point that he's promised for you, his people? All things necessary for our eternal good are promised to us in Christ. And so he goes on and asks a third question in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Now that's defiant language, isn't it? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? Who can prosecute you? Who can, who can prosecute you before God's court? Conscience, the devil, other people, who can remove God's good will for you? Are we not justified? Are we not declared righteous in the perfect righteousness of Christ? Is there any limit to the grounded confidence that knows its basis in God's election? Don't be afraid of election. Don't be afraid of predestination or ashamed of these things, people of God. Revel in them, for they are another name of God's love for you, his eternal love for you. Read John 10 often. God says his son knows his sheep, and he knows us by name. He knows you. These things are settled in the courts of heaven. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Well, the fourth question is found in verse 34. Who is to condemn? Again, defiant language uttered by a man who once built his life on the thought that his righteousness could please God, but now he knows that only one righteousness can please God, and that is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Only on the basis of that righteousness will Paul not be condemned and will be accepted. 
is accepted. This is the shield behind which we hide ourselves. We have one hope, not many, one Savior, not many, one Lord. There is no other confidence, there is no other ground. And so Satan accuses us and knows us well enough to attempt condemnation, doesn't he? He whispers in the ear, you'll never make it. God doesn't love you. You'll never find the Lord. The world doesn't claim your heart too much. Your own conscience doesn't it bring condemnation. And then we turn to a passage such as 1 John 3, 19 and 20. And God says, this then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts. The righteousness of Christ is greater than the condemnation of your heart. The promise of the gospel is greater than the condemnation even of your own heart. So how does Paul answer this? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand, who is interceding for us. Christ died, that's how he answers it. The penalty is paid in full. Christ rose for my justification and there he intercedes for me. I was condemned for you, our Savior says. For your sins I took your place, my blood, my merit, my righteousness speak for you in heaven now. So with a hymn writer we can say, Who now accuseth them for whom their ransom died? Who now shall those condemned whom God hath justified? My sin is great. Christ's sacrifice for my sin is greater. I have robbed God of his glory. But Jesus brought all glory to God for me. You have committed sins that you do not even know. Our hearts are so naturally wicked You and I have committed sins of which we are not even aware. And Jesus died for them, rose for them, and intercedes for his people. Fifth question is found in verse 35. Perhaps the greatest of all. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate you from the love of Christ, people of God? Who? Well, he gives a list here. Here are things you might think of. Tribulation, shall tribulation. The word here is flipsis. It means pressure. Shall the pressures of this life separate you from the love of Christ? No. Shall distress, he means here mental grief. Those crushing difficulties of life. It is I, be not afraid, be still, and know that I am God. Such is his word to us in the midst of mental grief. Shall persecution... Many of your fellow believers are greatly persecuted in the world today. Shall persecution separate them or us from the love of Christ? Shall banishments or torments or cruel torture or death? Many centuries ago, one martyr in the flames clapped his hands three times, shouting, none but Christ, none but Christ, none but Christ. Shall famine, sometimes a result of persecution, taking the people of God in places where we cannot even earn our bread, will that separate you from the love of Christ? Shall nakedness, he asks, the result of cruel poverty? Many a Christian has been called to imitate his Lord in nakedness, in persecution. Can danger or sword 
Paul knew this. Just read the litany of his own suffering in 2 Corinthians 11. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He knew what it was to suffer. We may endure trouble. We may endure famine. Even martyrdom, which is what he means when he says, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. None of these things will separate us from Christ's love. Through his love, you are stronger than your foes. We have the deepest motive in the fight of our Christian lives, the love of God in Christ. So come devils of hell, none can remove Christ's love from us or us from Christ's love. So that we are, verse 37 says, hyper conquerors through him who loved us. I love the words of the old Puritan Brooks. To try to stop the victory paid for by Christ's love and sacrifice would be like trying to stop the sun from rising, the wind from blowing, rain from falling, or like attempting to suppress a raging sea with bows and arrows. Nothing can stop God's love for you and all of its victory. And notice he says loved. Look at verse 37 very carefully. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul undoubtedly is pointing to the cross where the love of God in Christ has been demonstrated to the full. That love that secures us, that love that manifested itself but that has always been there for his people. Robert Murray McShane somewhere said, Christ's love to us is as old as the Father's love to the Son. Now there's a thought for you on the first Sunday of the new year. How long has he loved his Son? Always. How long has he loved you? Always. How long will he love his Son? Always. How long will he love you, people of God? Always. Christ's love to us is as old as the Father's love to the Son. How secure are you, believer? As secure as his purchase of you on his cross, where his love was mightily demonstrated. Which leads us to the third thing to see in the text. We'll call it firm conviction. Firm conviction. Because knowing these things should produce firm conviction in our hearts. The glorious climax, he says, for I am convinced, look at verses 38 and 39 again, for I am, and I'm sure Paul said, for I am convinced, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul defies every conceivable power of the universe to separate believers from Jesus Christ. The old tyrants that once held us in bondage have been subjected to Christ. Death, hell, guilt, the dominion of sin. Even death itself, the last enemy, cannot win over God's child. The tyrants have all been overthrown, every single one. The enemies under Christ's feet cannot destroy God's children in his arms. Now listen, people. 
Someone unfamiliar with suffering, someone unfamiliar with trouble, did not write this. Paul, the apostle who endured trouble and tribulation far beyond anything we will endure undoubtedly, is the one who wrote this, but in the midst of it all, he says, I am sure, convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Remember how he put it? I know whom I believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day, all the way to the return of Christ, to the day of judgment. Death, life, changes in the world, changes in your lives, angels, principalities, powers, things present nor things to come, they're all under God's sovereign decree. Nor height, nor depth, there's no dimension, nor any other creature, he's being exhaustive. Paul is being exhaustive here. He's leaving nothing out. There's no dimension, there's no creature, there's nothing that can separate us from God's love. Nothing. And please notice that from 28 all the way to the end here, the Apostle Paul speaks in universals. No condemnation, no power, none can bring a charge, nothing can separate. All is given us in Christ. All things must work together for good. In all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us universally. It is true for the people of God. Which leads us to see the fourth thing in the text, we are more than conquerors. More than conquerors through him who loved us. You say, Pastor, I don't feel like a conqueror. It doesn't matter. You are anyway. It'd be great when you do. Wonderful if you take it to heart and know that you are. Wonderful that your assurance can be strengthened, but it's just a fact. You are more than a conqueror. Conqueror would be a familiar term in the Roman world and the city to which Paul writes. The dominant military power of the world, Rome had conquered the known world and had triumphed. And Roman generals, as you recall, were accorded a triumph upon victory, a triumphal march through the city. On their triumphal chariots, with their enemies attached to their chariot wheels. Just look at the Arch of, of, of Titus, which commemorates the destruction of Jerusalem. They're, they're holding a wreath over his head. Because he's triumphant. Well, in a greater sense, you are more than a conqueror through him who loved you. You are not only going to win, you already have won in Christ. So he uses the term huper nukomen. You are a hyper conqueror in Christ. You are a superior conqueror. You are a supreme conqueror. In Christ. Paul in this chapter simply piles up the wonders of sovereign free grace and he says, Don't you see? Don't you get it? Don't you understand? All that I've been writing to you in the book of Romans about God intervening in the fallenness of this world and sending his son to be the propitiation for our sins and raising him from the dead and Christ, the last Adam, and his righteousness imputed to us, and in the midst of the the fallenness of this world, you are adopted sons and daughters of Jesus Christ, and the Spirit of God enables you to pray, and all of these things mean 
that you are more than conquerors through what Jesus has done for you. So let's sum it all up. Here we are in a new year. Do you know that he loves you? Do you know that he loves you? He didn't die for good people. He died for sinners. Do you know that he loves you? Now, I don't know why this text isn't used more in counseling, by the way. This should be one of the first texts to which we turn in many, many a counseling situation. Do you know that he loves you? I ask you. Hasn't he proven it in the cross? Hasn't he demonstrated it in the cross? Then do not let your love for him grow cold. Your security does not depend upon the strength of your love. It could never. But surely you see Paul here and everywhere. The love that Christ has shown him moves him to fervent love of Christ in return. He loved me and gave himself for me. That's Paul. Is there a more remarkable thing ever than that? He loved me and gave himself for me. Nothing more remarkable than that, is there? Nothing more confidence building than that. And one day I will exchange my pulpit for a palm branch. I've told Vicki I want palm branches around my coffin. You know what palm branches represent, right? Victory. I don't even like palm branches, but that's not the point. (laughs) One day I will exchange my pulpit for a palm branch and will cast my crowns at the worthy feet of Jesus. And when I stand before the Lord in my glorified body at the resurrection with other believers in Christ, no one will say, well, David, your love for Jesus was so strong you made it. Because unhappily, my love for Jesus is not nearly what I want it to be. But rather, they will say, his love for you was so infinitely strong, so infinitely great, so evident in his bloody cross, that on the basis of his eternal love, the merit of Christ was for you. And that's why you made it. Christ alone, Christ alone, Christ alone. Preeminently, we will love the Lord most soundly this year. And always, when we give all the glory to God for our salvation and acknowledge that it is all of grace from first to last, and we get rid of every vestige of our own works righteousness, the Lord has entered your life in order to master you. You and I should fly the flag of Christ from the parapet of our lives. We should be repenting and turning from everything that we know to be wrong, believing in Christ, trusting in Him, Let nothing be held back. Let there be no place in your heart held back from loving the Lord that loves you. And the person that will most do this is the person who most grasps that God loves him in Christ. I didn't say it causes God to love you. That's not true. He loves you because he loves you. But the person who believes and repents and trusts and learns to love in return is the person who simply understands God loves me. And he's forgiven me sins that I could never have, never have been forgiven apart from him. Someone has said the direction of a man's thought is always the decisive factor in his personality.
His whole outer life will be determined by the inward inclination of his mind. And what I'm preaching this morning is just that. I'm asking you, I'm calling upon you, that the inward disposition of your mind be one that knows you're loved by God and loved by Christ. Love and assurance. Go on in assurance of faith this year and always. Christ Jesus is Lord. He has not triumphed over over only small things, but all things including death. Has he not triumphed over every spiritual power? Is he not Lord over the present and the future? Did he not die for us? Was he not raised for us? Does he not intercede for us? Are we not justified in him? Are we not elect in him? Is God not for us and not against us? God in all the fullness of his attributes, God in all of his eternal love is for you, people of God, and is not against you. So believer, be assured, you are as secure as his own son upon his throne. You are secure and all the glory, all the glory goes to God. God's people said, Amen. Amen.